0: For great looking t-shirts hoodies and sweatshirts the tnt shop is now open at tntradio.live discussing local national and international issues weekends with jason Olborn on today's news talk tnt welcome back to the second hour of weekends with jason Olborn here on tnt Delighted to have your company and I hope you enjoyed the interview in the last hour with Alan Dana from Aussie Freedom Flyers and try to work out where we go next in terms of the mystery of MH370 almost 10 years on and we're none the wiser. Well in this hour we're going to take a little bit of a not a U-turn but we're going to stay in the same state with um, my next guest Barclay McGain who is also hailing from Queensland but this time we're going to go in a different direction talk about economics as Barclay is working for the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. He's also Secretary of University of Queensland's Monarch League and an Australian economic policy researcher, which is uh, maybe a little bit boring compared to Alan, but it's not going to be because we're going to get into the real details of what's actually going on. Would you believe it? Here in Australia, like the rest of the world, we have a cost of living crisis. When Barclay comes on the screen, you're going to go, who is this young man and how come he knows so much? But part of the reason for the discussion today is we're going to talk about one of these rumours that comes up virtually every time we have a federal election in Australia, and that is lowering the voting age. And in Australia, it's suggested to drop it to 16. Who does that benefit? Why would it even be suggested? And are the youth of Australia, young adults, interested enough in the political system or are they apathetic because of course here in Australia last year we had the voice referendum that was a massive failure but at the time it was speculated by the media that the young people of Australia were the ones that were going to drive this reform home they just didn't seem to be there at the time let's bring Barclay and now Barclay again. welcome to Weekends. G'day Jason, great listeners thanks for having me on. Good to have you, Buckley. It's been a, a little while since we've been able to have a chat, Adam. and so much going on. Uh, and typically, when we spoke in the past, we uh, we would always kick off with a little bit of cricket talk. I'm going to save that for the last segment um, okay. because I want to get into the real business right now. Mm. Last week, and you're back at work now at the Australian Taxpayers Alliance, and I hope you had a good holiday. That's right. But you see Anthony Albanese uh, coming out now with a tax cut. Now, I know from you and your boss, John, <laughs> that uh, whenever there's a tax cut, that is the way that it should be played. Did Albanese get it right for a labour man or how do you play or how do you see what happened?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Obviously, these are the the stage three tax cuts that were legislated by the Morrison government. And I feel like Albanese is in a bit of a bind. Um, the number one way in which we begin to curb this uh, cost of living crisis is not by more handouts. We already tried that uh, with COVID, um, but it's simply about boosting productivity. And the number one thing you can ask anyone on the left side of uh, politics about how we can boost productivity, uh, they will not give you an answer. And that's because they have not done anything in in relation to economics. And we know that the way in which you boost productivity is have... More money in people's pockets and the way in which you do that is not by huge government stimulus checks or handouts um but it's by lowering taxes and and that's why you know us at the ata have been huge pioneers of supporting um the stage three tax cuts um obviously they've been demonized by a lot on the left because it's seen as aiming at the top end of town um but what we see jason is these are people who are business owners these are people who um own rental properties um and things like that and, and they are able to provide for um, other people as well. Um, it's not a cliche to say it's uh, triple down economics. Um, it's simply a case that they're providing more jobs uh, for more people being able to work. And, uh, and I really do think that, uh, you know, it's one of the best solutions or the best solution that we can offer at, at this time. Um, and, and I know, you know, obviously there's the politics of it, of Albanese not wanting to support, uh, something that the Morrison government, uh, you know, the person who he beat at the election, um, his legacy. Um, but there simply is no other way. They don't have any other alternative, um, as opposed to more stimulus checks. I mean, in my home state of Queensland, um, they think that the way in which we solve the cost of living crisis, um, is giving everyone on the Gold Coast, uh, $50 to go and attend a theme park. Uh, for a weekend um and you know it's, it's actually quite funny what we've seen is uh movie world has just jacked up their prices um and so have a lot of other uh tourism operators i think there's a jet ski operator just near where i live um or where, where, where my parents or where i grew up on the gold coast um and they've also jacked up their prices as well so you know it, it has an unintended consequence they think that they're giving some relief they always frame it as relief um, But what it really means is that, you know, a, a business is going to act in their own interest and they're just going to jack up the prices and that raises the price for all of us. And, and that's no good. So, look, if there was ever something to give the um Albanese government a pat, pat over the back over, it's uh, it's it's that they've, you know, followed through with these stage three tax cuts. Yeah.
0: Yeah, interesting, isn't it, that uh, he, he kind of feels snookered in a way because he's going to be attacked from within his party for saying, how come a politician can get a $9,000 a year uh, back in their uh, in their pocket but at the mm. uh, average worker in, it's only a matter of a couple of bucks a week. And, of course, that's the part that he can't quite uh, navigate. And it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, you give and then you're criticised, you take and you're not. It's kind of like it must be a hard way to navigate, but uh, in a way it feels like he was snookered by the Morrison government Mm -hmm. just through um, uh, unintended consequences, right? Uh
1: Yeah, I, I will also add, and the reason why this is, I suppose, been on our radar recently, um, and it came from Vivek Ramaswamy, and I know we might discuss US politics shortly, um, he's actually spoken about the idea of a flat tax. Um, and now, a flat tax being a, the exact same rate paid by all people, it's normally proposed to be around 10 to 15% um, of your income. Um, now, what that does, and obviously, you know, it standardises it for everyone, but the thing that we don't often talk about enough, and this is something that we're looking at researching more into at the ATA, um, um, is the sheer amount of people each year that are employed at our arch nemesis, the ATO, the Australian Taxation Office, every year, um, solely working out uh, the different tax brackets that people fall into, um, and standardising and streamlining, streamlining that process, um, would allow us to trim the fat of the uh, of the tax collectors. Um, living down in Canberra and and the bureaucrats. So you know when we talk about stage three tax cuts, as much as we talk about um, giving giving breaks to people who are often the job providers in the economy, um, it's also about you know getting rid of that tax bracket, um, which was another layer of bureaucracy and another different bracket that people had to pay into. So you know that's something that you know will come to fruition soon. It's a, it's a watch this space, um, but it definitely needs to be considered and added to the mix. Yeah. Really
0: interesting because the flat tax I remember was first proposed here in Australia. It was Joe Bjorki-Peterson when he had a run uh, yes. way back in the 80s and he proposed a 25% flat tax from memory uh, yep. and uh, and he did quite well. He got a lot of support. Of course, he didn't win office, but uh, it certainly stirred up the mix and one wonders if someone did come out with a flat tax, whether or not it would attract the right people. But, of course, it's striking the right balance, isn't it? And when you quote yeah. numbers like 10 or 15%, it seems that no one would want to resist that provided, of course, there was some level of um, a tax-free threshold for lower income earners as a kickoff. And maybe everyone would get a tax-free threshold at the first ten dollars or fifteen dollars or $20,000 a year that they earned, and at that point it kicked in. And that would make a whole lot of exactly. sense because, because if everyone's paying the same rate of tax, the only incentive there is just to get paid more money for the work that you do, and uh, and that would be a simple way of of being able to navigate through. It's fascinating, Barkley, that you're, uh, that you're going to explore it yet again, but it doesn't seem this time that it's an old idea rehashed but time to look at new ways that have never Mm -hmm. really been tried, certainly not in this country, through a progressive tax system, that why wouldn't you do it if you could bring it down lower for everyone?
1: Yeah, well, that's exactly the point, Jason. And that's why we've actually taken the initiative at the ATA to talk about stage four tax cuts um, that the Albanese government should pursue. And and the reason being is because, well, you know, if if we look at the uh, minimum annual salary for a full-time worker here in Australia, um, it's about $36,000. Um, But the minimum tax free threshold um, is about 18,200. Now, for these people, um, you know, they're at the lowest income in society. Um, We would like to see that tax free threshold raised up to 36,000. And that would mean that you see less people um, in a queue at Centrelink, uh, less people uh, needing to go and defer to food stamps or, or, or rental help or student allowance help um so these are the kind of initiatives that you know instead of doing it a oh you pay us and then we pay back a little bit it'll be a well you earned it and you keep all of it um at least for those low-income people as well so i think you know uh, often we do have a um we do have this kind of notion that, oh, if you support the stage three tax cuts, you're from the top end of town. But well, maybe take a look at stage four, because if you don't do stage three, you've got to look, definitely look at stage four. And that's talking about uh, increasing the tax-free threshold for a lot of people. And I think you'll see um, that that'll allow people to, instead of living paycheck to paycheck, uh, keep more of what they earn, um, instead of just relying on some $50 handout from Stephen Miles, our new Queensland Premier, to go ride a jet ski for a weekend. Yeah, well said. And I will tell you what, fifty bucks
0: doesn't go par- far in a theme park anymore. No, I'll tell you that. We were up in uh, in, in Queensland uh, probably about fifteen months ago, and we did all, all the theme parks. We went to one of them, and there was two rides that were open. Everything was closed down. We were in and out of it in less than two hours. It was quite disappointing. And when you fork out for the family, four or five hundred dollars to get in, um, yeah. it, it's it's very disappointing that your money just doesn't get to go very far. Yeah, now, it's always it's
1: always your day. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's impossible. It's very expensive to get in and uh and disappointed but the kids uh they did love one of the other ones where you go on the water slides and i think that became the the, the, the uh the, the big hit of the of the tour most of <laughs> which was open at the time but yeah when you go along and expecting to go on these big rides and nothing's open it's kind of like oh gosh why are you charging me full tilt uh maybe you <laughs> should be subsidizing the entry fee at that price if you know if there's if 20 percent of rides are out charge 20 percent less and yep. see how you go i wanted to circle back to to the work that you said there with the more of the these tax reforms and i want to talk to you about income splitting um, John Howard brought it up many years ago. He was kind of laughed out of it uh, by Paul Keating and Peter Costello didn't want to have a part of it. But technically, Family Tax Benefit B here in Australia, families are, are entitled uh, through Centrelink, um, uh, Family Tax Benefit A and Family Tax Benefit B, depending on income levels, et cetera. But Tax Benefit B has generally been about the idea of putting money back to give the illusion of an income split. The idea, again, on a progressive tax system, if you have a uh, husband and wife, for example, and, and one party's earning $150,000 a year and paying a lot of tax at a high marginal rate and the other person is staying at home and maybe earning, say, ten or $20,000 in a part-time job and paying mm-hmm. no tax, the idea is that you combine the incomes and divide it by two and therefore you bring the, the income down. What I've always had a problem with was why you would have so many jobs created at Centrelink to do the calculations to get the um, – the, the, when you have to write in and, and estimate your income for the year and at the other end you've got to pay back if you overestimate or make a mistake why not just split the incomes in the beginning and just leave people alone and simplify and shrink government barclay Yep,
1: exactly and, and i think one of the big cheerleaders for that in the, in the current parliament is uh senator matthew canavan and obviously there's, there's two angles here there's the economic angle and there's also the social angle um, so you know starting off from the economic angle it, it seems a no-brainer um that for a lot of you know households uh both the husband and wife are forced into um, having to work simply to make ends meet and they're both having to pay um into a, a a tax bracket whereas if you know you were to have the husband you know earning a higher income and able to split it between the two partners uh, the husband and the wife then you know all of a sudden he's more money, more money in his back pocket and he's able to afford you know school fees um and you and paying for a good, decent living. Um, so I think I think, yeah, it's a great idea. Obviously on the social side, um, you can point to uh incentives for families to stick together um in, in, the, in the childbearing process and to raise the kids through school. Um another thing that that we've also been looking at is the sheer amount of subsidies that we give out for childcare um, here in Australia. And and the two are inextricably linked in my view, Jason, um because the denial of the current government to look at uh, income splitting uh, for parents, um, whilst they're also funneling all this money into childcare subsidies, um, it, it does reek um, of a lot of government corruption. And we know that a lot of politicians, um, even Peter Dutton himself have interests in a lot of these childcare centers. Um, and I think that, you know, one thing that we we've just seen a report come out recently um, regarding what childcare centers are doing, it's very similar to those tourism operators on the Gold Coast. They're price gouging, and you know I've driven around the suburbs of Brisbane, um, even on the Gold Coast, and on every corner now you're seeing a what well, what looks to be a huge white mansion um being built in every corner, and it's a new childcare. Um, it's because these places are price gouging. Um, they know that they can pr- uh, they can charge you a premium price because of the amount of childcare subsidies that we're giving out to incentivize uh, both parents uh, to get to work. So look, I think um, the government has to realise that again. You know, if they're wanting to unleash things like productivity, and they want Um, the, you know, kids to be educated in the best way possible and nurtured um, by the mother and the father, then they should look at something like income tax splitting. It's, it's, yeah, something that, you know, was brought up by uh, John Howard, and it just seems that it would be a no-brainer and something that would allow people to uh, flourish a bit more um, in this cost of living crisis, yeah.
0: There's so many benefits to the idea of, of being able to split to maximise the, the money back at home. And you would think that you, you should be able to do anything to lower the burden on the taxpayer. And if, even if that means mm. scrapping government jobs, that would be the, the first instance. <laughs> uh, I want I to talk a bit more about this price gouging before we go to the break. Uh, an example I'll, I'll give you is that way back in 1999, I put a deposit uh, with my partner at the time uh, on our first home. Uh, and um, we missed out on the first home buyers grant. We were we were the last, I suppose, of those people. But interestingly, I'll never forget it, we paid $249,990 for our first house and land package in northwestern Sydney. That home today is worth $1.2 million. Wow. It's possibly wow. Um, But here was the point that when that $7,000 um, first home buyers grant came out, almost overnight because i followed it like it was it was a hobby then and of Mm -hmm. course we all wanted to see how we could buy our second one but almost overnight all homes went up seven thousand dollars. Exactly yep. what you said there. So people could argue that you know, that's inflationary—that you're just injecting seven thousand dollars into the um, into the building business. But no, that's not really the case. But really, what they did was they changed the percentages. So it, it kind of it gave you, say, seven thousand out of two hundred and fifty thousand, which is roughly two and a half percent of the value of the home. Whereas before, if you had no savings, you had zero percent against two fifty. Now you had two and a half percent against two hundred and fifty seven. But it was that obvious, Barkley, and. And, and that yeah. is a perfect example of what's going on. Is there is this just a a phenomenon that is part of capitalism that there, we have this component of greed, or is this a price gouging something that can perhaps be better managed, or people be made aware and therefore prevent businesses and and and, and corporations from um, from playing down this this pathway?
1: For sure, yeah, I, I do think that um, obviously that there's a. There's an element to the regulatory side as well, but I, I think that fundamentally we've got to realise that people will act um more often than not in their own selfish interests. And instead of you know demonising that and trying to regulate that, we should actually use it to our advantage. And that's what um, a capitalist framework aims to do. Um, I remember during the time of COVID, um, the it was the CCC that wanted to intervene. Um, and limit the amount of uh, rat tests people could buy and 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 the, the prices of all, all the rat tests that were being bought as well. Um, but it was the government themselves who were mandating that you had to have a rat test um in order to go to work. And that was the reason why the prices were so high because there was all these shortages and the government wasn't able to, uh, to get enough. And I think on the housing side of things, and it came too late in the last federal election, it didn't really change things too much. Um, but to their credit, the Morrison government allowed... Uh, people to dip into their superannuation fund to look at buying a house and the reason why I would differentiate a policy like that as opposed to something like the first homeowner's grant which is a um, a public injection into the hands of, of young people is because it's not a male investment um, this is money that will be spent at some stage in the economy and it's actually the rightful they are the rightful owners of this money and you know obviously you can take the, the home ownership lens but as far as I'm concerned you know if you know a lot of the listeners here today might be concerned about things like work corporations work capitalism i mean i hate to bring it up but with the last two weeks all we've spoken about is woolworths and their decision whether or not to have australia merchandise it's because of these superannuation funds um that hold a lot of our earnings um before retirement um and they they get all the positions on these on these boards and at these agms for all these major uh, blue chip companies and that's why we see them trending in a direction where you think No one supports this left-wing line of logic, um, but they seem to be trending in that direction. So, uh, you know, I thought that was a great policy for Morrison, not just from the the housing economics perspective, but also, um, you know, reining in a lot of those woke corporate corporations. So, yeah, it's an interesting challenge. Housing policy will always be an issue so long as we have high immigration um, here in Australia and we have a lot of, you know, excess regulation on a council level in regards to Height limits and in regards to zoning. I mean, you know, just this holidays, Jason. I was actually visiting a friend of mine um, in Cabarita, which is a lovely um, suburb in the in northern New South Wales. And you know, they weren't you know too politically switched on, but I was you know probing. I said, you know, oh, how hard is it to get a property around here? And they said, oh, it's impossible. It's about one point three million dollars to get into the market. And then I said, oh, gee, that that sucks. And they, and then they said, well. Um, the good thing about that the council doing is that we have height limits so that you can't build above three storeys in all the Cabrera. I think that's really good. And people need to realise, and it's about us conveying this message, that you can't have one or the other. Um, either you want to have pristine views so you can see the ocean from, you know, five kilometres back, um, or you, you're you allowing uh, high rises to be built um, and have high-density areas um, for low socioeconomic people. Um, and then you would push those $1.3 million house prices down to eight hundred thousand dollars in entry level so yeah you, you can't uh you know have both worlds you kind of have to pick one scenario or the other or, or have a nice hybrid and I think until people realize that and and that's a that's a folder on the right of politics for not sending and conveying that narrative to people um we just continue conveying this narrative that oh it's it's a problem of the government giving you more checks and and, and more stimulus checks in order to to buy your first home which is uh, it, it's a great lie Jason
0: Oh, absolutely. And there it is. You have uh, champagne tastes on a beer budget or in fact, in many cases, it's a water budget. Uh, we're going to talk a bit more about the cost of living crisis after the break here on weekends with Jason Olborn. You're watching and listening to TNT. TNT's Timothy Shea. The race is essentially now Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley. Ron disappoints this will be pulling his hat from the ring next. And the issue, as always, is why is the Nikki taking so much of the left's money? Well, maybe this
2: will give you a little insight. She credits Hillary Clinton with inspiring her to enter politics, having attended a women's
0: leadership summit at which Hillary spoke. And Nikki said, and I quote, I then had to decide whether I was a Republican or Democrat. See, Nikki has no core beliefs other than doing whatever her globalist masters, paymasters, want her to say. The Reckoning with Timothy Shea on today's News Talk TNT. The lights is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory
1: paper spreading hate and vicious lies. <laughs> No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really
0: going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles, and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk, and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. thelightpaper.co.uk if you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. My guest this hour, Barkley McGain, who works for the Australian Taxpayers Alliance and is quite switched on, as you can tell, by what's going on in the political spectrum as well as the economic. Barkley, I want to talk to you a bit more about the cost of living crisis. And there is a feeling in Australia we've always had a political apathetic problem. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, dealing at uh, I- I- at the university level and in uh, mm. perhaps young Liberals and various organisations, and just a general feeling, do you think that the, uh, that the young kids today, young adults, and, and this push, mm. of course, always to try and lower the voting is that relevant, or do we have a more interested youth today, or do we have the same political apathy that we've always had in this country?
1: Yeah, I, I think it does boil down to civic engagement, and I think fundamentally, um, kids nowadays are told to live much more of a, a, a selfish lifestyle. So and when I say selfish, I don't necessarily mean in the negative sense. Um, a lot of you know um, students nowadays are very driven to try and try their best to get the, the best job, and and you know do umptillion degrees at university and, and try really hard. Um, but at the same time, um, the, the focus on civic engagement is quite low. And, you know, I'm someone who was involved um, growing up, you know, with my local Lions Club, there have been a Lions Club and, you know, I felt like the youngest person in the room by about 50 years and, and that was pretty accurate. And um, I, th- I think it's a shame, but I think that does translate onto onto voting. Um, now, one of the big reforms that we've spoken about at the ATA is that voting ought to be optional and that it wouldn't reduce the amount of civic involvement that people have it would just mean that people are actually more informed because then a politician actually has to work for their their vote and you know a lot of people talk talk to me about oh you know we need a we need another trump in australia we need another you know debate brahma swami or whoever the latest flavor is of the center right of politics um, and the, the right in australia is so devoid of any good ideas well it's because they're trying to appeal to the middleman we have compulsory voting um and so they have to appeal to the the middle of the road people who you know just have to vote because they don't want to get fined and they'll take whichever party gives them a handout or whichever party has the best you know slogan. Um, so I think a lot of young people feel like they're being taken for granted a little bit. And I think that if we had uh, optional voting, I think you'd actually see a an increase in um I guess you know political and civic engagement. Um, in that response because people don't feel the Australians don't want to feel like they're being forced to do something and now obviously we saw during COVID how a lot of us complied but from a political uh, lens where people who are you know have with tall poppy syndrome we normally t- try to tie our politicians down Um, the fact that we're forced to support politicians just makes to m- makes us completely switch off Um, and that's coming from a from a young person's perspective but you know specifically where I live in Queensland the membership of the Queensland LNP is at around 10,000 people now that's 0.2% of the Queensland population. Um, and in the young LNP, it's even younger. In fact, there's an interesting stat that came out, Jason. Um, of those 10,000 people um, in the young L- uh, in, the, in the Queensland LNP, um, the, uh, the amount of those that are, are, are under 50 is about 1,000. So you've got 9,000 of those 1,000 members that are over 50. So there is a huge gap um, in civic engagement. How we solve it, I think that it's a case of uh, harsh times will create stronger men, uh, stronger men being involved in their local communities. And it looks like, you know, with this cost of living crisis, uh, with interest rates going up, inflation, uh, the amount of people who you know can't get a roof over their head, um, it may be the case that the cost of living crisis encourages them to get more involved in politics uh, so that we can trim the fat. And uh, that's, you know, a hope of mine if there was any, you know, silver lining coming out of uh, the high prices that we see at the supermarket now, Jason. Oh, absolutely. So that's, it's really interesting, isn't it? The compulsory voting thing in Australia
0: is kind of obscure, and we noticed Mm -hmm. it certainly in the last election. And you notice it when you're actually there handing out at the time and realising how many people are just not interested and become kind of aggressive because their only real connection is to who their parents or their grandparents Mm -hmm. or their uncle or auntie voted for. So it becomes this rusted on sort of tribalism as opposed to uh, informed information about how you would run. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it would also therefore make sense. Like if you were to say well, we would support uh, voluntary voting. And you could say perhaps we would even then consider uh, lowering the voting age because if you've got an informed 17-year-old uh, as opposed to an uninformed uh, 35-year-old, I mean, you're already in a better position if you have that in mind. Uh, of course, anything's open for manipulation and corruption, but it kind of feels like that it's it's an open way to negotiate uh, wh- when that comes about. It would be interesting to see what the, um, and who becomes the, in, in politics, kind of like standing over and say, well, we're not going to do that. We're just going to go with 16 as the new voting yeah. age and we're going to maintain compulsory voting. But it would it, it's the debate that is the beautiful part of politics when it actually functions and it just doesn't seem that um, politics uh, functions very well anymore not just here in Australia but
2: anywhere
1: yeah exactly right Jason and I think that you know a lot of my friends will say, oh, you know, well, we don't want to lower the voting age because we know, um, you know, obviously myself being on the centre-right of politics, we don't want to allow those 16 and 17-year-olds to come in and vote because they have this perception that they're a part of this, you know, uh, left-wing union unionised kind of uh, woke movement. Um, but something I point to them is, is it's simply just all civic engagement that a lot of young people are quite apathetic towards. Um, I point to union participation rates. Um, they peaked in the 60s and 70s along with political parties. Uh, but now union membership rates are dismally low um every everywhere for every single union um all around and that's that's obviously because partially because they've become hijacked and by by the labor party i mean you had unions here in queensland um saying unions for yes talking about the voice of parliament which didn't really seem like it had much crossover with workers rights mm-hmm. um but i think it's the case yeah it's, it's just civic engagement across the board and if you allowed young people to have a vote um you know sure obviously there are voting trends which says that whilst when, when you're young, you're more in favour of these green progressive policies. But when you start paying paying bills, you start buying your first house, like we mentioned before, Jason, and, and you start having to, you know, raise a family and you start getting, getting concerned about uh, your kids' education and things like that, um, I think we will see that they trend in a, in a better direction, um, fingers crossed, and that's part of our messaging on the right. Um, so, yeah, it's it's on us to really try and uh, build that kind of aspirational voting base, I suppose, and, and lead them down towards a more uh, non-left-wing work park. Off, yeah. Well, this is it. It's such an interesting point because it's
0: hard enough to build up a nest egg to get into the housing market and then spend the mm-hmm. rest of your life attempting to pay it off and getting to retirement age. And hopefully you've, you're supposed to have been able to pay off your home and saved enough money to live off. And that doesn't seem the case. It's the reason why reverse mortgages were created. The fact that you could yep. borrow off equity and exactly. uh, and spend yes. that money into your retirement and spend the kid's inheritance the same way. But it seems that it should be the very, very minimum that we expect in life in a, in a country such as Australia. Australia with an abundance of land and opportunity that everyone has the right to be able to save up some money, work hard for it, pay off their home if they want to. But it seems now it's virtually impossible uh, to enter the market when the um, median house price, for example, in Australia, in, in Sydney, sorry, is one and a half million dollars or more. I mean, just mm-hmm. to just to save a deposit of five percent is seventy five thousand dollars. Then you've got to yep. save stamp duty, which is probably another fifty or sixty thousand dollars. No yes. one, uh, no kids can save one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to get into the housing market to only be five or, or, or ten. of the equity to Mm -hmm. to get into that market. And so we call it the Australian dream, but really it's a nightmare when you think that so many people are excluded from the very basics. I mean, to work your entire life just to keep a roof roof over your head is, is not much more than subsistence, Buckley.
1: Definitely. And and the the point that I make to, you know, fellow young people who often chat about this kind of thing saying, I'm not gonna be able to buy a house until I'm 30 is that it's largely entirely government created. Um, you know, if you look at, you know, everyone talks about Sydney as being the worst for housing prices. Well, funnily enough, and I would say that it's not just a mere coincidence. Uh, Sydney also has about 25, 26 local government areas um, in the city of Sydney. In Brisbane, we only have one, uh, one local government area. Um, the issue is that if you look at Sydney, they're all there protecting their own little ecosystems of property prices um, to try and make sure they stay artificially high and that people can't get into the market. Whereas in Brisbane, you've got a far more level playing field. There's no people competing against each other. Now, obviously, you know, obviously as a, as a free marketeer, we want competition. But the last thing we want competition on is competition amongst the bureaucrats to try and, you know, take, uh, you know, take the developers for a ride and protect their own little ecosystem. So um, I think that if you were to trim the fat on the local government uh, level and you had the amalgamation of a lot of these councils, um, you'd actually see um, that housing prices would not be as uncontrollably high as they are. Um, I, I think obviously, you know, people talk about, oh, we've got to raise interest rates and we've got to give more stimulus checks. But fundamentally, it's, it's a government created issue. Um, and the solution is more government, but it's to simply take away the government and, uh, and streamline a little bit more.
0: Now, I want to switch gears and ask you about the Olympic Games in uh, in yeah. Brisbane. You had Anastasia Palaszczuk telling us that she was exempting herself to fly overseas in the middle of the pandemic when uh-huh. no one was allowed to do anything, and she was rushing over because she had to to secure the Olympic Games where she was the only bidder. Uh, what is the sentiment like on the ground in Queensland, particularly around Brisbane? Are people excited about it? Are they, uh, are they feeling a little bit of a Daniel Andrews hangover who uh, pulled out of the Commonwealth Games? And, of course, you've got the controversy over the knocking down of the Gabba, which was only recently sort of redeveloped into a magnificent cricket stadium. Uh, It just seems to be a typical government plan to overdo and double up. And in a time when we can't afford to waste a single penny, here we are just throwing money hand over fist into something that's already half built. I I don't quite understand it. I wanted to get your economic perspective Mm -hmm. on it.
1: Yeah, Jason, it's not really often that I find myself on the same side as the NIMBYs, um, but as far as I'm concerned, um, the, the Gabba rebuild, it's $2.7 billion that we're talking about, um, solely for a stadium upgrade, which will include about five to 6,000 more seats. Um, you know, I'm not you know making up numbers there. You can Google all of this and, and find it in the recent, I think it was an article by the ABC. Um, th- that's how much we're talking about here, um, $2.7 billion are just for a few extra thousand seats for an event which goes for two weeks. In about eight years' time, um, and it simply doesn't stack up. Um, you know, I, I, um, there's a local campaign being run here by the East Brisbane State School. This is a school which has existed for about 110 years, um, and you've got kids there who don't know um, whether they're going to be able to go to school the next year or if, it, if it's going to be shut down by then, because there's a lot of you know back and forth between the council and also the state government. In fact, I think the council recently have just said this uh, proposal does not stack up. This is the Brisbane City Council. You would have thought the only area in Queensland which would support the Olympic Games, which would largely play out in Brisbane. Um, and they've completely taken themselves from the negotiating table. Now, obviously you've mentioned what happened in Victoria and the complete um, you know, uh, debacle that was the Commonwealth Games there. By the way, uh, Daniel Andrews' replacement, Jacinta Allen, um, was the former minister for the delivery of the Commonwealth Games. So her track record, uh, you know, now that she's ascended to Premier, is a fantastic given that we've just had the cancelling of the Commonwealth Games in Victoria. The reason why, Jason, if you are asking me to look into the crystal ball as to whether, you know, it goes ahead, I think it will. And the only reason why um, is actually seldom talked about. So Victoria is obviously a state in unimaginable debt, and it's truly the case that if they were to go ahead with this Commonwealth Games um, and some of the ludicrous government contracts that they tried to, uh, and I think a lot of it's playing out in the courts now, government contracts that they agreed to but are now backtracking on, um, is because of their, their bottom line, their budget. And Queensland is the only state with a budget uh, which recorded a surplus in the last uh, financial year. And uh, the elephant in the room is the only reason we're able to was because of the coal royalties um, and and the fact that we have such uh, rich coal mining resources here in Queensland. And that's something that the Queensland government, again, want to change. Uh, they want to raise the coal royalties um, through the roof, which is going to impus, push investment uh, to other states and, you know, uh, even to international uh, deposits of coal. So uh, it's something that, you know, the Queensland government who are drunk on this left-wing ideology of trying to phase out all coal are trying to phase out the only thing, which is, one, allowing them to afford this Olympics bid and, to continue to afford absurd costs like the $2.7 billion um, that they're injecting into the GABA. So, yeah, it's a complex issue. Um, they're, too, they're in too deep now to pull out. Uh, if only we could go back in time and and, and realise, hmm, maybe this isn't a good opinion. But the issue here, Jason, is that every politician sees this as an opportunity to grandstand. You know, I'm, I remember I actually volunteered at the 2018 Commonwealth Games, and there was a huge furor about how long Anastasia Palaszczuk would be able to stand there at the opening ceremony and give a, a, a self-congratulatory speech as the world is watching, um, about how great she is and how great Queensland is. And there was, you know, jostling for positions between the Prime Minister, between the Premier, between the the, the Gold Coast City Council Mayor. And, you know, it, it just becomes a politician, a chance for politicians to grandstand. And the fact that, you know, someone, you know, an average everyday punter in the community who's been taken for a ride, uh, whether it be the Olympics or Commonwealth Games, thinks that this is in their interests, uh, sadly misled. And we saw that on the Gold Coast. They were promised the world after the Commonwealth Games, that we would be the number one tourist destination in Australia, not just Queensland. Um, and it simply didn't eventuate. There's businesses that that weren't able to survive, uh, they weren't able to open up. And of course, not long after the Commonwealth Games, we had COVID. So a lot of those are now permanently closed. So uh, yeah, it's a lot more heartache um, than 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 benefit. Uh, but alas, we'll be going
0: ahead and uh, we'll see how we go. Yeah, well said. Look, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk more with Barclay. This time, I'm going to ask him about the economics of test cricket versus IPL with staggering amounts of money being paid. And I know that uh, Barkley's going to enjoy that. And then we're going to get into US politics through Barclay's eyes, what he sees and mentioned Vivek Ramaswamy before, who has since dropped out of the US presidential race, but it's certainly not the end of his political aspirations. We'll take that break now. We'll be back with more here on weekends on TNT.
2: When I had my heart event, close to four years ago. I was at the gym, thought I deserve a coffee, and thought I'll top up with fuel, ordered a coffee. But while I was pumping fuel, I started to get chest pains. Then it got worse and worse and worse. So then I was leaning on the counter thinking, yeah, something's not quite right. So then I went to wait for the coffee, and that's when it really, really hit. And Joy just, you know, mouthed, do you need an ambulance? And I remember nodding. I wasn't even thinking about a heart attack. I just thought, something is seriously wrong with me here. So when the cardiologist came to see me, she informed me that I'd had what they call a widow-maker heart attack. Bit of a shock when someone says, you know, you nearly died. (laughs) Everybody should be aware of all the symptoms of a heart attack that women can have that aren't typical of the shoulder pain, the right arm pain. I go to the gym, I do yoga, Pilates, I swim, I go on bike rides, and yet I still had a heart attack. You just don't know it could be you.
0: Meet Norm. He lives with anxiety. But with the help of this latest innovation from Be Normal, he can be normal, just like everyone else. With the swipe of a finger, you can project happiness, confidence, machismo. Why settle for being real when you can be normal? the normal maker new from be normal this item doesn't really work because there's no such thing as normal we're all different what we like how our brains work in fact one in five of us live with mental illness don't filter who you are start by talking to someone you trust and remember there is no normal this is weekends with
2: jason olborn on today's news,
0: today's talk. news talk tnt Welcome back to Weekends, my guest this hour, Barclay McGain. And we've been talking, gosh, we've been talking a lot about Queensland, the Olympics, taxpayers, voting age being dropped. We're talking about uh, income splitting. I don't think there's much that we haven't uncovered. So, Barclay, it's very important before we get into the US politics, and I'm desperate to uh, to hear your thoughts there. I just want to cover awesome. off on the politics and economics of sport this time in the world of cricket Mm -hmm. because it seems that it's a real have and have not stage if I can just sort of backtrack just momentarily the World Cup we saw was played out the 50 over game and we saw that uh, the West Indies one of the you know the great teams of the 80s did not Mm -hmm. even qualify which was staggering and then we fast forward and Australia wins that and they win the the, just before that they won the Australian uh, the the test challenge against Mm -hmm. India And, and even though they weren't potentially at their best then we fast forward into the IP Uh, and the the auctions went ahead and we saw some staggering amounts the most i've ever seen for cricketers being paid 4.4 something million dollars for fast bowler mitchell stark an australian captain and also fast bowler pat cummins got a four million dollar bid i think glenn maxwell got a couple of million in there and uh and even young um uh, cameron green got a huge contract as well Mm. how do you think uh this plays out for the future perhaps of Cricket, the way that we traditionally said, given that test cricket um, is is by many, it's um, by seeing that it's, it's strong and the weak. There's not too many great, strong countries there. The game itself uh, with the attention spans uh, shrinking, the games even shrinking, like the last test match that was just played out between Australia and West Indies, mm. the Adelaide Oval was finished in two days and one session, incredibly mm. short. What do you see as a cricket fan yourself? How are you reading the game at the moment?
1: Is it healthy? Is it
0: in a metamorphosis? Or is it in trouble?
1: I think it's definitely in a metamorphosis if you were to Put into those three categories. I think it's definitely in a transition phase, and and I know as someone who you know not only plays cricket on the weekend, I play you know thirty five overs limited um, limited overs cricket, Um, but I also coach um, under tens, and I I can say fundamentally, um, their entry level into the game is going to be the the big bash, and maybe not necessarily the IPL, um, because that's on an absurd hour. Um, but the the big bash is really where you know people are coming in, tuning in, and watching games. And you know, as a traditionalist, you know, I'm, and someone who's loved cricket for a long, a long time, obviously, there's parts of that which I can lament, and there's also parts of that which I can say, well, you know, alternatively, these people would have been playing Aussie they would have been playing junior rugby league, they would have been going down different routes, and that wouldn't have been good for the game of cricket, um, to survive and flourish. So. I think it's a case of, look, I definitely want to see the the sanctity of, of test cricket remain. And I think it's it's shocking what South African cricket has done recently. I mean, they've just announced their squad for the new tour of New Zealand. Um, and it's essentially a B team. Mm-hmm. Uh, their second team is South Africa because they all want to play in the local South African T20 league. Um, but I would never like to see that eventuate. I think it's important that they look at having windows. So obviously the window for the Australian test summer is late November through to perhaps early January or mid January, where we are about now. And then you allow for the tournaments like the, like the Big Bash and things like that. Now, obviously, we've seen the Big Bash run concurrently um, with the Australian Test Summer. I think it actually works quite well here. The issue is when you have tests being scheduled um, during the IPL and because of the sheer amount of money that it brings in, I mean, you mentioned just before, uh, Mitchell Stark earning $4.4 4 million uh, just for, you know, six to eight weeks' work. Yeah. Um, it's actually insane how much they're earning. And to an extent, you can't knock these people, but you would hope. Um, that the idea and the privilege of playing, uh, you know, with the bag of green and with the Australian lads um, would reign supreme. But, yeah, it's a tricky time in cricket. Uh, For traditionalists, perhaps not as good. Um, But for someone who simply just likes people, you know, getting out and enjoying themselves, and I I like the big bash here and there. I'm actually going to the game uh, on the Gold Coast tomorrow night. Uh, Go Heat. Um, You know, I, I think it's not necessarily the worst thing either. Yeah, it's, uh,
0: I'm glad you brought that up. And it's the perspective that I really appreciate Uh trying to understand a bit more how other people see the game that uh, is now played by many, many countries around the world. And just the fact that it's in India and how powerful they are. I mean, what are we talking about? A, a sixth of the world's population is obsessed with cricket in one country, uh, yep. just watching what's going on there. I, I wanted to make the point um, way back in, uh, in in the early 90s. I, I wrote a paper at, at university uh, based on, would you believe, Ian Chappell's book, Cutting Edge. And specifically, I was talking about what he came up with that that idea, goodness me, over 30 years ago, his suggestion was that one day cricket, 50 over, limited over games, were in big trouble back then. And his suggestion to um, to rejuvenate the game was to change it to 225 over innings, make it a one-day test match, if it were. And I thought that was just an amazing idea, but it's never really been fleshed out. But it kind of bridges the gap between, if you're bringing kids up to play T20 Big Bash games, to, to appreciate the idea of a two-innings match to lead into loving cricket and playing the, the five-day game, two innings each side. What I specifically love about it, if you played it as a day-nighter, both teams would have one innings in the day and they would have their second innings in the night. Mm-hmm. So they share conditions. And I wanted to know if
1: you had any, If what do you think about that idea? I think it'd be fantastic. I've never actually even encountered or heard of that idea, but I think it's fantastic. I would rather see it trend in that direction um, than trend in the direction of what you have now in uh, Dubai, which is the the T10 league. And I really do think that that undermines fundamentally what cricket is about. Um, you know, it, it eventually ends up with the bowlers just being servants uh, for the bats when they're playing on uh, a postage champ, a completely a tiny field. Um, and you know they've got 10 wickets in the shed and, and they've got – you know, only 10 overs to bat. They're just going to be slogging everything for six. You know, there's such little focus on what the pitch is doing. There's such little focus on... Um, you know, um, you know, bowling good length balls. Um, it simply just becomes a case of how can you limit the runs? And I think that we still want bowlers to go out there and try and take wickets, try and clean up the stumps, try and bowl yorkers like Lassif Malinga and Brett Lee used to, as opposed to just being you know bowling wide outside off wide yorkers all the time to try and make sure you don't get hit for a boundary. So, yeah, I, I would actually really like to read a bit more about that proposal of Ian so Obviously, he's a uh, He's he's an ideas man he's always got uh, his two cents to add to the to the table um i i think that's probably a better solution than you know the T10 league that we've seen in Abu Dhabi yeah
0: Yeah, indeed. Now, we're going to switch gears again. This time we're going to talk a little bit about US politics. And you mentioned Mm -hmm. Vivek Ramaswamy, a young um, up-and-comer in the political space who uh, just this week suspended his campaign and endorsed Donald Trump. Interestingly about uh, Ramaswamy, I think he's only like 39 years of age, but there seems to be this new renaissance of very young, successful politicians. Now, Mm -hmm. yesterday I read that, um, and and I I don't take it uh, seriously for a moment because it's just all speculation in terms of uh, Donald Trump's potential violence. Uh, president uh, running mate. And and they suggested in this article, they suggested three names. One was uh, Elise Stefanik. The second one was Nikki Haley Heaven Help Us. And the third one was, um, was J.D. Vance and I thought, mm. where did that name come from? And again, I looked him up. He's 39 years of age. Now, we've just yes. seen the El Salvador president's like 35. Um, Jacinda Ardern was 38 when she got elected and became the um, uh, the prime minister of New Zealand. So this is a very, very new thing juxtaposed against the US president. You've got Joe Biden in his early 80s. You will have Trump. Yes. He'll be virtually uh, 80 by the time. Uh, well, he'll be 79 if he, if he wins office, when he takes office and is inaugurated, uh, although he looks like he's at least 15 years younger than biden uh so so you've got you've got 80 year olds and and all of these globalist davos attendees they're all in their late 70s and early 80s now when you think of al gore 75 and and john kerry i think he's, he's virtually 80 and klaus schwab etc and then you almost skip an entire generation and you're bringing in new blood in, in their 30s how did you read the Ramaswamy campaign is he someone in for the long haul do you think
1: I think he is. I mean, at his age, he's able to be in there for the long haul. And a lot of the ways that he was able to speak and reach young people um, was really quite captivating. I thought, um, you know, as someone who was young as well. Um, and I, I think that he's someone who, you know, we will hear more of him in the future. Um, I think, you know, on the topic of Trump's vice presidential candidate, I think that's really becoming the discussion point now. I mean, after Iowa, you know, DeSantis went all in on Iowa and he managed to get about 22 percent. Uh, Trump still has a majority. And I think, you know, DeSantis will likely come third in uh, New Hampshire, and that may well be the end of his campaign. And we know that Trump has, uh, has you know, not seen eye-to-eye eye with DeSantis for quite some time now, and and certainly not with Nikki Haley either or, or Chris Christie or some of the others have dropped out. So, obviously, Vivek Ramaswamy comes into the question. Now, uh, you know, there was a talk show that I was actually listening to last night. Supposedly, uh, Trump is calling people, asking their opinion, but saying that he has already made his mind up and asking them to change his mind. And his mind currently sits with... Uh, a male, and it's currently not Vivek Ramaswamy. And I do think it could be someone like J.D. Vance, the Ohio governor. And that is somewhere that Trump would like to see himself do a bit better. Um, I think if if he looks at an option like uh, Ramaswamy, you know, it's a crowd that he's probably um, more likely to tap into already. I mean, if you're voting, for, if you're looking for, you know, y- the young people's vote, you're certainly not going to vote for Joe Biden, are you? So he feels like he already has that kind of uh, you know, route tapped into. Um, but it, it, talk about the geography. Uh, you know, JD Vance represents Ohio. This is a working class area. Um, you know, it's a lot of you know, uh, white middle class working people. Um, and they're the people that Trump, you know, definitely needs to get on side because they were eaten into by Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden. Um, you know, unlike Hillary Clinton, um, took the state of Wisconsin, took the state of Michigan. Um, I don't think he took Ohio, but, you know, it certainly was a lot closer than when uh, Trump ran against Hillary- Secretary Clinton in 2016. So I think he sees the geography um, of that kind of decision playing out. Uh, J.D. Vance won quite won quite convincingly. I think it was in 2022 when he took the governorship of Ohio. So I think that could be a, a, a good pick for him. Obviously, he's, he's going to pick someone who's loyal to him. We know that. Um, so, you know, J.D. Vance is someone who's definitely a Trump loyalist. Um, and I think he's he's probably going to be a good pick. He's very, very well spoken. As you said, he's only 39. Um, and he could be a potential presidential pick you know, down the line in 2028, if that is indeed something that Trump would consider doing um, to continue on the, the margar agenda, so to
0: speak. It's 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 extraordinary, isn't it? And when you think political history, JFK was only um what was he forty three um or forty five when he died, so he mm-hmm. he was a very young man. Of course, he he didn't look like a young man, didn't speak like that, but very very young. And of course, this yeah. is um it's happening around the world where you get uh, young politicians. I think Pierre Poiliev in Canada is only in his mid forties as well, yeah, and and, and he's a real another one, a breath of fresh air in the way that that yeah. man can debate and just simplify is, is yeah. something to behold. We we watch against uh trudeau who's just you know annoying to a, <laughs> it there's it, very hard to find anything sort of endearing about trudeau and his <laughs> checkered past and some some horrible stuff uh, and also the lack of qualification and credential in trudeau he he, he wasn't really anything except the um uh the, the son of a former prime minister uh yep. and, and and yeah that, yeah you know, that's that's yeah. frustrating as well it is it is certainly fascinating how do you think um uh, we've got a year now so we've got we've got indian mm-hmm. elections uh in, in april we've got russian elections in march we've got uh, mm-hmm. canada as we just mentioned uk before january of next year for mine it feels like that the uh, the brics nations russia and india are, are going to stay the same but it feels like there's political change in the west wherever wherever we go we saw what happened in new zealand uh late last year uh and how quickly labor was thrown out of office there uh do you see or do you feel a sense of political change elsewhere?
1: I do, and and I do feel it here as well. Um, I think that there's been, you know, obviously we had our own uh, mini, well, we had our own referendum, we had our own Brexit moment, really, Mm. um, with the the, the voice referendum, and, and we saw that, you know, the the general public agreed with what was thought to be the unelectable uh, leader of the center right being Peter Dutton, um, who came out uh, to oppose the voice. Um, but I also do think, you know, in the United States, I mean, look, it, it, they haven't really been dealt a, a good set of cards either. The left they have to deal with um, Joe Biden. Um, but in terms of the right, I really do think that there's a resurgence um coming up. And you know, personally, as much as I think you know, Trump's definitely the front runner. I think Desantis is a, a formidable candidate personally. Um, and it's it's amazing how uh, someone like Nikki Haley who served in Trump's cabinet and was not seen as some, you know, left wing moderate Republican is now seen as the left wing moderate option. And that's because Trump has taken on this kind of, you know, and he, for better or for worse, has taken on this populist messaging, which is really resonating with people. People are fed up. Um, And you're seeing a lot of, you know, right wing parties, um, parties being elected uh, in Europe. I think Marine Le Pen is still, you know, waiting in the wings um, in France and her party is still you know, doing quite well Um, in the UK. I mean, obviously we've seen that, you know, it looks like the Labor Party might win there, but that's only because uh, the UK Conservatives have not mounted any challenge since Brexit and in many respects have not even really delivered on the mandate that the people gave them uh, with Brexit. And, and they're going to be reminding them about that. Um, so, you know, I think that there is quite a bit of a change um, in, in the water and, and it is amongst a lot of those those BRICS nations or the, the, those BRICS nations, are, as I think you mentioned, will stay the same, but they will be affected by the outcomes of what happens um, in a lot of these Western democracies. And you know, as you mentioned, uh, New Zealand have just a changed uh, party. They're now, now at the National Party. So um, interesting to see how how that plays out and for our relations with them as well.
0: Indeed. Now, um, at the Australian Taxpayers Alliance, has there been any sort of discussion
1: over the uh, Argentinian president, Javier MLA? He's fantastic. And one thing that, you know, I think I um, spoke about, you know, uh, on, on social media, um, his speech uh, at the World Economic Forum, and now don't, don't panic just when you hear that when he speaks at World Economic Forum doesn't mean he's agreeing with them, uh, was completely just from the book of exactly what we need to unleash Uh, prosperity and I think it's going to be amazing seeing where Argentina is in five years from now and one thing that you know perhaps people from my generation um, don't appreciate is that Buenos Aires used to be one of the major global cities of the world Um, but now it wouldn't even rank in the top five in South America Um, and and that's saying something about how what what socialism has done and government intervention under Juan Peron and, and and his acolytes um, in recent years, um, that's what's led them to, towards that kind of path, and and people are, you know, now having to fork out an insane amount of money just to buy bread and milk um, at the supermarket. So they've gone to Harvey MLA. Um, obviously, he's a bit of a, a comical figure as opposed to just a, um, a free market fundamentalist. Um, but it's going to be entertaining to see how he goes. And you know, I personally liked it when he brought. Uh, a chainsaw to a campaign rally and says it starts it and says this is what i'm going to do to government regulation and red tape so i thought that was amazing it was something from a, a libertarian wet dream so to speak and uh you know i thought that was fantastic
0: I, I've never felt uh, such a direct uh, breath of fresh air that I saw with Malay. I remember when he had that victory standing in there, that leather jacket with the big lamb chop sideburns and, and, and a little boy waved to him and he called for him and they pushed him across and he came up and the little boy looked at him directly in the eye. Malay looked at him back in the eye and they embraced and it was a hug and the little boy had tears in the eyes like it was a new hope. Pretty wow. much what people thought when Obama was elected under that whole hope banner, but this just felt so real. And, yeah. and Malay himself... Um, also had just you could just see a little glistening in the eyeball there and it was just pure joy and pure love and pure hope for a country desperate to uh to renew itself and return itself to its to, to greatness I, I just I love that about politics that um that you you have the ability to change and not to be scared and it's these fearless leaders like the Malays of the world obviously like Trump with 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 a skin thicker than a crocodile's how that man can take what he does and continue feels like he knows more than he's letting on he always uh always plays plays a little bit dumb he always underestimates he gets underestimated Trump but he seems to he's called Trump for a reason and that's because he's going to win not lose and this this period of time in in US political history is is unlike anything I think we've ever seen that an outlier an outsider can be can have that much influence that they are panicking Mm the left are now calling for a coup a military coup should Trump win everything that's been talked about um throughout this period of time being projected back at Trump is extraordinary Barkley
1: yes yes Yeah, and and it, you know I, I haven't actually mentioned this to you yet, Jason, but I've actually um, I actually plan to go over next month to the CPAC USA conference uh, where not only Trump but also DeSantis and Nikki Haley will be presenting, and supposedly Harvey MLA may be coming to that event. So look, I'd love to, you know, I know we're nearly running towards the end of our session here today. Um, it's been great chatting with you and, and the listeners as well, um, but you know it'd be fantastic to see if we could uh, catch up afterwards, and I can give you a report on what I thought this person spoke on. Maybe this person could working spoken a little bit better this person was loved by the crowd and you know it'd be unreal if someone like Harvey MLA uh, was able to speak at that conference but I think he's got to become more fluent in English first so we'll see how he goes huh. Yeah, look, that's yeah. a fair point. But he, he got away. It was a brilliant speech,
0: as you said, at Davos. It was just mm. something else. And, and again, it was the it's the fearlessness uh, in that environment, I suppose. Uh, well, let's just hope that he gets home safely uh, and continues on with his work. It's horrible that we even have to think that way. But uh, the World Economic Forum, this unelected body of uh, people have been going on for a long time that seems to attract mm-hmm. all the globalists, seems yep. to get away with anything in its agenda. I often say, who died and made Klaus Schwab CEO of Earth Incorporated? It seems like exactly. that's the way that it's being played. Played. And there it is, Buckley. We've got to the end of our time. It's been a thrill uh, and a delight to be able to catch up. It's been a long time, and I would love to be able to find out what happens on the other side of CPAC USA, <laughs> where all the big names are there. So I want to of thank course. you again. Uh, don't sweat too much up in uh, sunny Queensland. I hope that we get, yeah, that my family gets up there really soon to enjoy the beautiful summers that are there, and may, uh, may the heat get up uh, to when they play, Fingers because crossed. they uh, have been the best team all summer in the T20. See, you can't <laughs> stop with talking about cricket at any stage when you're on. We're going to take a break here. We're going to have news, and when we come back, we're going to have a brand new, fresh guest and interview here on weekends with Jason Olborne on TNT Radio.